has anyone ever asked you, how can you be so stupid? Have you ever, like, how, how on, why would you do that? Um, how, how, could you, how could you not know? How could you not know that that's actually going to happen? All right? Here's another one that people actually say to each other. You probably had this one for sure, where people go, ah, well, see, I'll tell you, but you're just not going to get it. So I'm not going to tell you. I remember my sisters, my older sisters when I was young, I really, this is weird, like church family, going to church, I'm just kind of going, man, I kind of want to go in your class, and they just go, you don't get it. You're not going to get it, all right? And I'm just going, yeah, yeah, I would. Like, try me, all right? So they asked me this Bible story, and they said, what does that mean? And I'm just going, I said, right, here's what it means. See, you don't get it, so you can't come up. You know what's really interesting about people's uh, knowledge is knowledge, I think, has a lot more to do with revelation than it does to do with intellect, all right? It just, it just does, all right? And there's a couple of uh, scriptural examples of this. Uh, one of them's in uh, Matthew 23. One of them's on the on button. One of them's uh, in Matthew 23, verse... Oh, it's coming, really. Oh, see, now my battery light's flashing. All right, I'll do without it. Here's the first one. Why do you scribes and Pharisees, the smart guys, hypocrites, for you tithe mint and dill and cumin? You guys, are, wouldn't that make a mess of our pot plant? It's just like people throw the spices and gear in there. It's just, it'd smell nice. It would be licking the 50, Diff would be licking the $50 note up the back there. And have neglected the weightier matters of the law, justice and mercy and faithfulness. These you ought to have done without neglecting the others. You blind guides, Jesus is pretty funny, I reckon. He goes, you strain out a gnat, a tiny little insect, and you're swallowing a camel, all right? And he's really saying, you don't get it. You're really, really smart, but you don't actually have knowledge, all right? Um, Another example is uh, in Psalm 92, verse 5 to 8. It says, how great are your works, O Lord. Your thoughts are very deep. Listen to this. The stupid man cannot know. He might want to study it. He might want to try and find out, but he just... He can't know because knowledge is not just about intellect. Knowledge is about revelation, ultimately. The fool cannot understand this, that though the wicked sprout like grass and evildoers flourish, they are doomed to destruction forever. But you, O Lord, are on high forever. So the psalmist is, I mean, the psalmist wrote it down. Honestly, the stupid people would be able to read what the psalmist wrote, wouldn't they? And still not get it and still not understand it. Now, I want to offer one possible reason why this is uh, the case. There's a a guy in America who's a very smart man. He's a Christian man called J.P. Moreland. He makes a really uh, interesting comment about why people don't get things. We often read the Bible, hear the news, listen to a sermon or talk to friends, yet we don't get much out of it. One central reason for this may be our lack of knowledge and intellectual growth. The more you know, the more you see and hear because your mind brings more to the task of seeing as or seeing that. Does this make sense? I think, it's pretty, I think he's pretty right. In fact, the more you know about extra-biblical matters, the more you'll see in the Bible. Why? Because you'll see distinctions in the Bible or connections between Scripture and an issue in another area of life that would not be possible without the concepts and categories placed in the mind structure by gaining the relevant knowledge in those extra-biblical areas of thought. Thus, general intellectual development can enrich life and contribute to Bible study and spiritual formation. All right? So he's really saying, um, if you do extra study, if you, 
He's kind of saying if you commit to being a kind of a lifelong learner and always wanting to learn things, you're going to find out more things that you thought didn't exist, if that makes sense. Because I don't know whether you've noticed this, but when you actually, the more you study, the more you realise you don't know. But the less you study, the more you think you know. That's kind of how it works. All right? And that's kind of what J.P. Moreland's saying. Now, I am actually preaching on Hebrews today. All right? Now, some of you go, oh, okay, this will be interesting. And what's interesting is the writer of Hebrews actually addresses this very issue in the section that we're going to look at today. The whole way along in Hebrews, he's been hinting that there's a problem with his readers. Okay? In uh, chapter 2, verse 1, he said, uh, pay close attention to the message you've heard, otherwise you're going to drift away. In 3, verse 1, he said, consider Jesus. In 3, verse 8, he says, don't harden your hearts like Israel did in the wilderness. In 3.12, he says, take care lest you have an evil heart of unbelief. In 4.1, he says, fear lest you fail to enter God's rest. In 4.11, he said, uh, be diligent to enter God's rest lest you fall by disobedience. And in 4.14, he says, hold fast to your confession. There's a bit of a problem that he's hinting at and he's going to go explicit with it. And here's the problem. Hebrews 5, 11 to 14, if you've got your Bibles there, you can uh, open them up or um, read it off the screen. <clears throat> about this, we have much to say. Now, he's just talked about, you remember the last message from Chris Windus about Hebrews was on Melchizedek, right? So he's just about to go into something pretty complex, all right? He goes, I've got a lot to tell you about this, all right? We have much to say, and it's hard to explain. Why is it hard to explain? Because you've become dull of hearing. For though by this time you ought to be teachers, you need someone to teach you again the basic principles of the oracles of God. You need milk, not solid food. For everyone who lives on milk is unskilled in the word of righteousness since he is a child. But solid food is for the mature, for those who have their powers of discernment trained by constant practice to distinguish good from evil. You see, there's a little bit of a sense for the writer of Hebrews where you just kind of go, why don't you just say it? And he goes, well, I can't say it. I can't say it yet because solid food is for mature people and you guys aren't ready for it. Melchizedek, who we're going to get to in a, in a, in a week, well, in a few weeks, he's for mature people. It's just like for mature people only, all right? And this is not the adult kind of DVD store for mature people only. This is like some really solid kind of stuff. This is, I, I want to give this to you, but you guys are not going to get it if I give it to you right now. And so I think there's a huge opportunity for the project to learn from the immaturity of the church that the writer of Hebrews is, is writing to. One of my classic sayings is, uh, a fool learns from their own mistakes and a wise person learns from everyone else's. All right? And this is our opportunity with Hebrews to learn from their mistakes. You see, in verse 1 there, the uh, author of uh, Hebrews says, you've got to move on from the elementary teachings. All right? See, milk's the starting place. Repenting and believe is the starting place. It's not the end place, all right? There's a place for milk, but that's not the sustenance of a mature person, all right? Paul actually talks about this in 1 Corinthians 3, verse 1 and 2. He says, But I, brothers, could not address you as spiritual people, but as people of the flesh, as infants in Christ. I fed you with milk, not solid food, for you were not ready for it. And even now you're not ready. And so what we've actually got in Hebrews is we get up to chapter 5, verse 10, and he's just started to talk about Melchizedek, and then he stops. And he doesn't start again, I think, until around about chapter 7. All right? 
because he's just going, you guys have got problems. And I was half thinking about doing this and maybe we'd have less people next week if I did it, all right? But I was half thinking about coming in and starting the message and then just stopping and just going, no, you guys are babies. <laughs> so we can't do this. <laughs> you don't get it. Because that's what he's just done. Have you seen that? He's just gone, oh, man, I'm, well, I'm giving you... No, forget it. You're babies. It's like we've come to church and it, they're all high chairs. All right? And everyone sits in a high chair, you know? It's, but that's the nature of preaching and that's the nature of writing a book to someone is you don't just kind of rush in and go, here's the thing I need to say. He's going, no, I'm just going to pull up because it's, it's a little bit messy and you're not going to get it. Um, and it, it could well be the case that some of you here are just not ready to hear, you know? And you go, maybe you go away from church and you go, or you go away from Christian stuff and you go, that was really lame, I didn't get anything out of it. It could be the preacher, all right? But you know what? Most of the time it's not. Most of the time it's you. So the writer here, he's pretty offensive. He's going, you guys are a bunch of babies. You're dull of hearing like you're deaf. You're like a 70-year-old pensioner that hasn't got their hearing aid in, all right? And I'm not having a go at them, all right? Because my dad's a bit hard of hearing, but he's just going, that's what you're like. You're dull of hearing. I want to tell you some stuff, but you're not going to get it because you're dull. The eyes are glazed over from people in the crowd, all right? They're probably walking out of church, the people that the writer of Hebrews has written to, and they're going, ah, I didn't get anything out of that. That was pathetic, all right? You know why? You know sometimes you don't get anything out of it. You know the reason why? Because it's too deep for you. It's not because... And, and, I mean, we are just absolutely tricked up, are we not, with the entertainment mentality? You've got to tell a few gags and entertain me. But how many times... Have we gone to church and we don't get it because it's just too deep? We're not ready for something that deep. Pretty often, I suspect. See, it may well be that there's actually a problem in my life, in your life, when we go to church that stops us from hearing the depth of the truth that's actually there. See, it's okay when a four-year-old acts like a four-year-old, isn't it? But if I came in down the front and one hand I had raised in worship and the other thumb was in my mouth, Right? You go, well, that's weird. He's 39 last time I checked in the shade. All right? What's he doing that for? All right? Because there's a problem with it, right? If someone's older and they're acting like a four-year-old, there's a huge problem. One of the things I say to uh, one of my boys thinks it's really hilarious to squeal like a girl at the moment, right? And I'm all over him at the moment about it, right? I say, don't squeal like a girl. All right? Now, I won't have any females at church here next week, so I'll just qualify it. I say to him, I say, if you're a girl and you want to squeal, that's okay. But it's not right for a boy to squeal like a girl. All right? And this is the kind of thing that we're actually talking about. Don't be childish. Don't be a child when you're an adult. And the thing is, there's a sense here with uh, Hebrews that it's actually their fault. It's their fault that they're childish. And so I'll just ask you the question at this point in time, Think back to the day, if you can think to a day, a specific day where you accepted Christ. And I, I'm not, I don't want you to be perfectionistic about it, but are you where you thought you sh- you'd be by this point in time? Not perfectionistically. Don't, don't go, oh, you're never going to be perfect. All right? Yeah, you're not. Okay? 
And I'm not saying that. That's why whenever I ask surveys and that sort of stuff in the project, I say, put your hand up if you think you're doing okay, right? Because everyone's going, oh, yeah, I think I'm doing okay. But I'm not doing well, because apparently in the Christian church, you're not allowed to say you're doing well. Are you where you thought you should, you'd be by now? Oh, yeah. Do you need to go back to the first principles? Are you moving and changing? There's a sense here with the Hebrews like they were, weren't they? They were moving. Sorry, the, the people that the writer of Hebrews is talking to, they were moving and they were changing, but they stopped. And they just didn't stop. They actually regressed. See, the analogy I use um, often is uh, the, the analogy of an oil tanker. All right? Um, a, full, a filled oil tanker takes a long time to get momentum and it can run for a while when you cut the engines because it's got momentum. But when the thing stops, man, is that thing hard to get going again? You've got to put a lot of energy in it to actually get it going. Is that you? Where's, where's your spiritual walk? Have you ground to a halt? And it's almost like the, the uh, author of Hebrews is saying, you guys have actually, you're worse than beginners. You're not even just a beginner. You're actually in a worse place than a beginner would be in. And they need to be taught the beginning stuff again. You see, it's not just laziness that's going on in, uh, that the writer of Hebrews is writing about. What he's actually doing, this is what I think he's doing, is he's just trying to spur them on a little bit and just almost kind of irritate them a little bit, you know. Dig the elbow into the ribs and then start turning it around, you know. And for them, I mean, I think what he really wants them to do is, is just go, no, no, we're not like that, and kind of, kind of step up to the mark and just go, we're ready. We're ready to b- become mature. We're ready to act mature and not be a child anymore. He speaks of the fact that they're unskilled and uh, untrained in the word of righteousness, unskilled, untried, unpracticed. I'm teaching senior furnishing at the school here and I really enjoy it. Uh, It's it's very entertaining. I've got about 14 boys uh, doing my subject. Um, But most of the boys at the start of the year just didn't want to learn that much from me. That's how I felt. All right? So I went in and I showed him some photos of some stuff that I've made and I said, I can help you to make that stuff. And uh, then they just wouldn't listen to me, all right? And I'd, so I went down to them and uh, they were marking out all this stuff. We're building some, doing a community project and building some shelves for some uh, art resources. And uh, I said, look, you probably shouldn't do it that way. And they go, oh, we've worked out how we're going to do it. Okay. So in the end, I went upstairs. I said, righto, here's the deal. I said, you guys don't really want to learn from me. Didn't say it quite like that, but I basically said, you guys think you know how to do it. So what I'm going to do is I'm going to give you a two millimetre tolerance, all right, which means that you can be plus or minus two millimetres, is what I told them. You can be plus or minus two millimetres in terms of the, the dimensions and the sizes and that sort of stuff. Now, needless to say, the shelves were like 10 millimetres too short. Uh, they were out of squares, some student came over to me and they just go, um, yeah, we're finished, we've glued it up. I'm just going, okay, did you check it for squareness? Like in manual arts, what you do is you measure the diagonals because in a rectangle, the diagonals are exactly the same. All right? He goes, no, I didn't do that. And so I took the whole class over and I said, this is how you check diagonals to check for squareness. He goes back over. 15 minutes later, he comes back over. 
I said, no, how'd you go? And he goes, oh, yeah, no, he goes, it's okay, it's a little bit out. I'm just going, how much out is it? And I'm, I'm thinking, a couple of mils, right? Honestly, there's a bit of perfectionist in me, so I'm going, I just want to get it right. I want to get it exactly, right? Because I taught him how to do that. He goes, ah, oh, so I don't know, 10, 15 mils out. I'm just going, oh. And I'm not going into who it was, but I even had a student come up to me and... Uh, and uh, he saw me um, in my office one break time and he goes, yeah, I'm kind of a bit upset with you. And I'm just going, oh, okay, what are you upset about? He goes, I feel like you're out to get me. Every time, every time I do something wrong, you call all the class over and you kind of show them what I did wrong. And I'm just going, well, I said, I'm not trying to upset you and I'm not trying to shame you. It's just like you guys won't learn from me. So when you make a mistake, how am I actually going to teach everyone? You know, like you make a mistake, I'll show you the right way. So there's, there's this sense... The weird thing is, I think, not all of them, but some of my boys think they know a lot about woodwork. And they know less than they know. And it's, it's almost kind of like that in Hebrews here. Is, is that the people probably think that they know a lot more than they actually know. You see, it, it, maybe they're not even asking for help. And the thing is that for the boys in my senior furnishing class, the more they would reveal to me what they don't know, the more they would know. Because I actually, and I'm not saying this like from an arrogant point of view, it's just a matter of fact. I mean, I've been trained in it. I went to uni and I got trained in it and I've been doing it for the last 15 years and my house is filled with furniture. So I might be able to do a couple of things that they can't do. And if they actually come and ask and are kind of vulnerable about it, they're going to learn some stuff. And when you learn the stuff, you get to practice it. You see, they would actually really know woodwork if they actually did it. You don't learn woodwork. It's kind of like a distance ed course in swimming freestyle. You get what I'm saying? You can learn all the stuff on a screen, but that's not really going to help you, right? You learn about freestyle when you get in and you actually learn how to swim. That's, and you can say, I know freestyle. I know woodwork when I'm actually able to make some stuff. I have more revelation. You see, for the the people that the author of Hebrews is writing to, they're actually not immature because of a lack of knowledge. They're immature because of a lack of practice. That's their problem. And that is the main cause of immaturity in Christians, I think. It's not a lack of knowledge, it's a lack of practice. And this is what the writer of Hebrews is saying. So let me ask you this, what is maturity? What's the standard? I'll show you a couple of scriptures that speak to this. Ephesians 4, 11 to 13. And he gave the apostles, the prophets, the evangelists, the shepherds and teachers to equip the saints for the work of ministry, for building up the body of Christ, until we all attain to the unity of the faith and of the knowledge of the Son of God, to mature manhood, to the measure of the stature of the fullness of Christ. That's maturity. All right? The measure of the stature of the fullness of Christ. So, and you can actually see there in uh, Hebrews chapter 3, the next scripture there, sorry, Hebrews 5, for everyone who lives on milk is unskilled in the word of righteousness. So it's obvious maturity is being skilled in the word of righteousness. That's what it is. You see, if you were skilled with an, a saw, a knife or a football, it actually means you can use it really well. All right? 
So I want to suggest to you today that what the author of Hebrews is saying is he's saying the place of maturity is the place where you're able to distinguish between good and evil really, really well using the Bible. All right? So what the author is saying is you need to get into the Bible, you need to understand the Bible really well so that you can translate it into non-biblical situations that you find yourself in so that you can discern between good and evil this week, tomorrow. In uh, Matthew 16, if you've got your Bibles here, you can uh, flick over to that just to um, chapter 1. There's this classic uh, criticism that Jesus makes of the uh, Pharisees and the Sadducees. And the Pharisees, this is verse 1 of Matthew 16, and the Pharisees and the Sadducees came and to test him they asked him to show them a sign from heaven. He answered them, when it is evening you say it will be fair weather for the sky is red. And in the morning it will be stormy today for the sky is red and threatening. You know how to interpret the appearance of the sky but you cannot interpret the signs of the times. What Jesus is saying is you guys are really smart but because you can't translate your understanding of the Bible into a new situation, you don't have knowledge. So that's the test, right? And this is what the writer of Hebrews is saying. The test to see whether you're mature is how well you go at translating biblical truth into non-biblical events that happen in your life, all right? That don't look the same as something that gets addressed in the Bible. So when an ethical or a moral situation comes up for you and you've got to make a decision about it, your ability to translate biblical truth into that situation and make the right decision will uh, be evidence of how mature you are. You see, you've got to be able to see. You've got to be able to see and look with God's eyes. I think uh, one of the fathers of the faith, I think it was, talked about thinking God's thoughts after him. You've got to be able to think God's way in your life situation. And the word has got to be totally in your mind. And then, as the uh, writer of Hebrews says, once you've got the word in your mind, there's got to be constant practice to apply it, constant practice to obey it. You see, the real issue is not an intellectual one, it's a moral one. Now, someone asked me the other day, they said, uh, any of you guys running the project, have you got like a theological qualification? <laughs> Some of you would smile, because you can't, well, that's the answer, you just, that's funny. <laughs> All right? But we don't. But biblically, you know where authority and maturity comes from is not actually from intellectual theological training, it comes from obedience. So the people who are the wisest, the smartest and the most authoritative in churches are not the people who have done the most training. They're the people who are the most obedient. It's true. Now, I'm not saying that the leadership are the most obedient. Don't hear me saying that, right? I don't know. I would hope maybe that we might be in, in the top 30% because I think that's going to be weird if we're not, all right? You see, I don't have anything against Bible college. I've done Bible college and I might even do some more in the future, all right? But the bottom line is that the Bible college doesn't make spiritual giants. It just doesn't, all right? It, it puts the stuff in the head. It doesn't make spiritual giants. You want to be a spiritual giant with authority? Be obedient. Do what God asks you to do. You see, the Greek word for training or practice in, uh, in Hebrews here is the root word for gymnastics. Isn't that interesting? 
So the writer of Hebrews is going, be like a gymnast with the word and applying it. Be like a gymnast. And it's interesting, the same word gets used in 2 Peter 2 verse 14 and it says there, they have hearts trained in greed. So someone's like a gymnast with greed. Training like a gymnast with greed. Let's not be like that, all right? Don't be like that guy, okay? Be a gymnast in getting into the word and then applying it to, uh, to obedience. I, uh, I went on the plane, on two planes yesterday, actually. I wouldn't be back here if I went on one. Um, but have you ever, ever noticed when you, when you go flying, if, you, if you're flying on a few planes... You know, you don't really pay as much attention anymore when they do their kind of, there's an emergency exit over here and this thing's going to fall down and don't put that on as a life jacket because it's under your seat and that won't hold you up. And Do you know what that is? That when you don't listen anymore, you know, that's, that's actually dullness of hearing, isn't it? And now I've noticed, like, I went on Qantas yesterday and maybe they've, I don't know, it was a cheap ticket, so I took it, but... Uh, I don't know about the other flight still, but you've got this screen right in front of your face. So now they're telling you, your safety is our number one priority. And so you can either watch the screen, which is kind of right there in front of your face, or you can watch the attendant to work out what to do if the thing crashes. Well, I think some of their ideas are crazy, to be honest. So I, honestly, seriously, if a plane goes down, you're not going to survive, right? I'll just tell you, this is a bit of a side note. You're not going to survive. You know how they get you to do that brace position like that? I'm just, you know what, you know what I reckon you should do? Get your head as close as you can to the hardest object you can find, right? Because I want to be out to it when the thing goes down. I can cuss me. Don't protect your head. Anyway. You see, the first time, that, I don't know if you ever remember the first time that you went on a plane, the first time you go, you, you really listen, don't you? You just go, this thing really could go down, right? <laughs> I'm going to need that life jacket if it goes down. And I used to think, and I, was, I still think it is, you know, they kind of go, do you want an, an exit kind of seat? You get a bit more leg room. You just got to help, you know, the people to disembark. You just go, all right, okay, just give me the leg room. I, I don't care. I'll, I'll pull the door off if I've got to, all right? And at the start, you're kind of going, well, I've really got to listen to that, you know, because I might have to lift the door off, all right, in the middle of the Atlantic somewhere. I'm going to have to pull it off and I'm going to have to help people out. But... You know, once you've been in the exit row a few times, you just kind of, ah, oh, it's not going to happen. You know, and you just kind of get dull of hearing, don't you, in a sense. And you just kind of go, well, for me, the pessimist in me goes, look, we're all going to die anyway, so let's just stay on the plane and just go down with it. And hopefully I'll be concussed at the end of it. You know, I'm, and I could say something to you like, Jesus says, don't lay up for yourselves treasures on earth. And you kind of go, yeah, I've heard that. And yet it's almost like you're sitting in a 737 Boeing and you're, I don't know, it's a, she's standing there holding the thing and I'm standing there holding the thing and I'm just saying, don't lay out treasures for yourself or it could end really bad. And you're just kind of, yeah, yeah, okay. You know, and you know, that, I mean, that's, that's dullness of hearing, isn't it? We get dull in our hearing to actually hearing God. And I'll just, I want to encourage you today, don't shut down with God. Here is, here is, here is warnings. Here is encouragements. Here is promises. I mean, I could say to you, don't store up for yourselves treasure in, on earth, right? And you're going, oh, that's Sondergeld again, having a crack at us. That's actually a promise, all right? 
because it actually goes on to say, store up treasure in heaven where it's never going to get destroyed. So it's just, it's like Citibank, except Heaven Bank or whatever it's called, right? Just invest, invest, invest. And he's just going, listen, it's going to be better for you if you keep investing in every way in an eternal thing rather than just investing in, in this world. So it might be nice to have a new Camry, but it's going to, I mean, mine Magnet, I bought that brand new, and I, I love that car when I bought it. But the blanking lining hanging down. Do you, do you know cars do that? And you, for a tall guy, it's just like, because I've always got this little bit of parsley that sticks up on the top of my head there, and you get this lighting, it's just, it's really annoying. And it was a really nice car, and I looked after it, and I polished it, and washed it, and now that Juco starts a clear coat on, it's gone, and everyone's going, look at that guy in his, uh, in his nice Magna, you know. But that's what happens on this earth, isn't it? Things just rust, the clear coat comes off, the lining falls down and irritates your head, all right, and things just don't work the way you want them to work. And so Jesus' prom promise comes out of that. I wonder how many times you've, uh, you've thought when you've read the Bible or you've been to church, you just go, yeah, I've read that before. I've heard that. Maybe sitting there going, hasn't he preached on this before? All right. Well, the writer of Hebrews thinks it's pretty important that people hear it a few times, doesn't it? He just does, you know, be careful. So I want to go through three things and then I'm going to wrap up about why people's hearing gets dulled. Hearing is dulled because disobedience is the fruit of false worship. All right? In Psalm 115 verse 4 to 8, uh, the, the psalmist says that people become what they worship. They take on the qualities of the thing that they worship. Their idols are silver and gold, the work of human hands. They have mouths but do not speak, eyes but do not see. They have ears but do not hear, noses but do not smell. They have hands but do not feel, sorry, but do not feel, feet but do not walk, and they do not make a sound in their throat. And the telling line is this, those who make them become like them, so do all those who trust in them. So he's saying that, if you worship something that's not God, you'll become stupid like that thing is stupid. You'll become dumb like that thing is dumb. And so by definition, you don't get to a deeper understanding and a deeper knowledge and a deeper revelation by disobedience because disobedience shows a, a false or a disordered worship. Does that make sense? It's really important, right? Second thing is this. Hearing gets dulled because we believe a lie. This is out of uh, Romans chapter 1, verse 18 and 25. For the wrath of God is revealed from heaven against all ungodliness, excuse me, and unrighteousness of men who by their unrighteousness suppress the truth. you see that? People want to keep doing what they want to do, so there's a truth suppression going on. The issue with Christianity in the marketplace is not that there isn't enough evidence, it's that people suppress the evidence, Okay. That's the issue, all right? Now, we can give you lots of evidence, and there's lots of evidence out there, but people suppress it. They exchanged the truth about God for a lie and worshipped and served the creature rather than the Creator who is blessed forever, amen. So you see here, when you actually disobey, you embrace a lie. And by definition, a lie is anti-truth. It's anti-knowledge. It's anti-revelation. 
So when you decide to worship something else, you're actually embracing it to your chest and saying, I am prepared to believe, trust, hope, love and pursue something that is by definition deceptive and untrue. And you just end up in a place where, I mean, if you're a Christian and you do that often enough, you'll be a thumb sucker before you know it. You'll be a baby. You'll be the person that Hebrews is talking about. But what about this one? Hearing is actually improved by obedience because obedience moves people from the theological truth to practice and it takes it deep down into, uh, into their hearts. I've uh, talked about this a few times before at the project, but God shows up to Moses in the burning bush and he says, I want you to go and get my people out of Egypt. And Moses and God have an argument. I would think if you've been in the desert for 40 years looking after sheep, you might just keep your mouth shut for a bit, but it looks like he's going, ah, I don't really want that mission. All right, give me something else. Now, the interesting thing about it is it gets to a point, I think in uh, chapter 3 here, where, where Moses kind of says, I want proof about your character that you're going to do everything that you're saying you're going to do. And here's what God says to Moses in response to that. He says, this shall be the sign for you that I have sent you when you brought the people out of Egypt, you shall serve God on this mountain. You know what he's saying? Is he's saying, this is how you're going to learn about my character, by just going and doing what I asked you to do. And Moses is going to go, no, but I want you to tell me what you're like before I go and do it. And God goes, no, you're actually going to know what I'm like when you go and do it. Do you see the connection? And so obedience and knowledge are actually not, a se- they're not separate entities, they're actually intertwined together. This uh, guy who I love uh, started reading uh, one of his books a while ago, um, The Doctrine of the Knowledge of God. His name's John Frame. This is what he says about it. He says, Obedience is not merely a consequence of knowledge, but a constitutive aspect of it, which just means a component of it. Right? Obedience is part of knowledge. It's not separate from it. Without obedience, there is no knowledge and vice versa. And... The more I study uh, stuff and the more I think about biblical truth, the more I realise that we separate things that are not meant to be separate. So uh, even J.P. Morland's quote came out of an article on the mind. And I, I don't think... Uh, the Bible talks about the mind, the emotions, the will, as all being, and other things being part of the, the heart. And I don't think you can pull a chunk out of it and talk about it. I think they're, they're all kind of intertwined and interconnected. And obedience and knowledge are intertwined and interconnected. You don't get one without the other. And that's what John Frame is saying. And I think that's actually what the uh, author of Hebrews is saying. This is what John Piper wrote uh, on uh, this section of uh, Hebrews on Melchizedek. The startling truth is that if you stumble over Melchizedek, it may be because you watch questionable TV programs. Ouch. That's where we're getting to, isn't it? You don't get it. If you don't get stuff, you don't get deep stuff in the Word, it could be that you're just watching dodgy TV shows. If you stumble over the doctrine of election, it may be because you still use some shady business practices. If you stumble over the God-centered work of Christ in the cross, it may be because you love money and spend too much and give too little. The pathway to maturity and to solid biblical food is not first becoming an intelligent person, but becoming an obedient person. What you do with alcohol and sex and money and leisure and food and computer have more to do with your capacity for solid food than where you go to school, 
or what books you read. So if I was Jesus, and I'm not, all right, some people kick around in the earth and lead churches and think they're Jesus, right? But I'm, I'm not. All right? But if I was Jesus and I stood here and he stood here and he, he looked at you, what would he see? How old would you be? Are you a newborn? And there's no problem with being a newborn if, you, if you're a newborn. If you've just come to faith, you're, you're young, all right? But if you've been a Christian for 20 years, do you look like a 20-year-old Christian? Or do you look like a 5-year-old or... Maybe in some cases, I would think that if you were really obedient, really faithful to God for 20 years, you could probably look older than what you actually are. You could maybe be a 30-year-old Christian, couldn't you? Or look like one. You see, when you first become a Christian, you guys remember that? that there, there was just that moment, there was that season where you're just really pedantic about things. And it wasn't a legalistic pedantic. It was just a, a, a really passionate pedantic. I just want to be really careful here. I really want to focus on things. I want to make sure that I'm in the right. You see, and then we kind of get older. We get in the faith for a little bit. We think, ah, it's a bit legalistic back then. Ah, it was a bit too rigid. It's a long race. I've got to pace myself. We start to justify things. Back then, you probably you're just really hardcore about what sort of things you'd watch on TV and what movies you'd watch and now you're a bit lax. You can uh, just watch whatever comes on the box or get desensitised. What used to be so good doesn't seem so good anymore and what used to be so bad just doesn't seem like it's as bad anymore. See, it's not that we don't know the doctrines. We've actually got moral problems sometimes, don't we? You see, cheating at work and getting sloppy in your life affects your understanding of God and it affects your knowledge and your understanding of truth. Biff, would you mind just grabbing me a couple of tissues, please, mate? So I just ask you, and I'm not asking you this. Some people kind of go, oh, you're just getting all legalistic on me, right? Thanks, mate. But the writer of Hebrews has said you've got to be skilled in the word of righteousness, right? And you know how you do that? Well, you've got to read it. Is that an unfair connection to make? You just don't. So, like, don't hear this as condemnation, right? It's going to end happy, okay? But, like, you probably would need to be in it every day, wouldn't you? Like to do Hebrews 5, you, you, you pro- that's just, how would you do that? How would you be really skilled if you weren't in it regularly? How would you be skilled if it wasn't actually permeating the whole day somehow? Maybe, maybe scripture memorisation, I don't know. Maybe listening to preachers when you're in transit somewhere. Like how do you, see, if you want to get skilled and you want to know stuff and you want to get good biblical, I mean, you've, you've got no idea the things that God wants to show you. You, you really don't. Like you've got some really cool stuff and he's probably told you some stuff. You go, well, that's nice, all right? And it's probably just the hors d'oeuvres, all right? It's just I've got a main course, all right? And to be honest, your main course is going to need a new body because your brain's going to explode if he gives you the deal now. And that's, I think, part of the reason why you need a new body. So take heed to how you hear. Jesus said this all the time. 
didn't he? He said, be careful how you hear. Get in the word, but be careful how you get in the word. Get in the word and have ears to hear. Get your greatest education from those who are most obedient to God. So learn from the obedience of, of, of biblical characters. Learn from the obedience of people around you. Learn biblical truth from them. Here's where I want to finish. You don't know what you don't know. Honestly, the riches of things that God wants to teach you would blow your mind. They just would. What he's got in reserve to reveal to you and to help you to understand, you don't even get it. You don't even know. You don't know what you don't know. And the weird thing is that we kind of go, ah, you know, we get a slice of white bread from God and we go, ah, that's pretty cool. All right? He's got a blinking smorgasbord up there. And it's like, this is the thing, like what I'd love for you to hear is that that God extends an invitation to you to learn something that is just going to blow your mind. And it's not going to blow your mind because of the complexity of it and the intellectual nature of it. It'll blow your mind because of the profundity of it, how profound it is, how deep it is. You know, like I could say to you now, I could say, um, for God so loved the world, out of John 3.16. And I would suggest that probably everyone here has a different understanding of what they think God's love is like, out of John 3.16. And it probably matches up with their level of obedience. Not because you win God's love by obedience, but when you obey and you repent when you disobey and you say sorry to God and ask him to forgive you, you learn lots of stuff about yourself and then in turn you learn lots of stuff about God and how he handles you when you mess up. And then you realise, I because mean, when you stay away from it and you don't really get into it too much, you can get arrogant. You can kind of go, well, I'm a pretty nice person and God should love me. Now, the more you obey God and the more you follow him and the more he changes you, the more you realise you don't deserve it. Not in a negative way, but you just go, honestly, I just don't deserve this. But God keeps loving me. And he's loving me again. I don't know. I don't know. Maybe some of you today need to hear that. Maybe you need to hear, maybe you failed. And there's an opportunity for you, if, if you would obey God and repent and turn away from the stuff that you're doing, he would show you some more stuff about who he is and who you are. And it would be good. But see, you're not going to get there unless you repent. You're not going to get there unless you turn. Beautiful scripture in Psalm 25 verse 14 says, The friendship of the Lord is for those who fear him, and he makes known to them his covenant. Other versions say he reveals to them his secrets. He's got lots of secrets, you know, and he wants to tell you his secrets. But you don't get his secrets and you won't understand his secrets if you don't obey him.
just going to go to my last slide and then I'll, uh, I'll pray. This is um, Thomas Charles. He was a uh, Welsh uh, Methodist clergyman. He was meditating on uh, Melchizedek. Like, just work that out. All right? I've never meditated on Melchizedek. He did. Here's what he said. I had such a view of Christ as our high priest, of his love, compassion, power, and all-sufficiency, as filled my soul with astonishment, with joy unspeakable and full of glory. My mind was overwhelmed and overpowered with amazement. The truths exhibited to my view appeared too wonderfully gracious to be believed. This is too good to be true. I could not believe for very joy. The glorious scenes then opened to my eyes will abundantly satisfy my soul millions of years hence in the contemplation of them. What's he saying? He's saying, I could go for millions of years just thinking about this because he's understood something about God that he just didn't get and it was absolutely beautiful. And it wasn't just intellectual. It wasn't just reading a verse and learning something. It was a heart knowledge that he actually got to. Why don't you stand with me, hey, and I'll pray for you. And uh, Would you mind coming out and wrapping up with a, a tune? Maybe the, I uh, can't remember the title of it, but the song about being holy, God making us holy. Why don't you pray with me, hey? God, I pray that um, people who, today, who need to hear your love and your tenderness and your care and their disobedience or their failure, they'd hear it. Just pray that your uh, kindness to them today would lead them to turn and to repent, say sorry to you and seek your forgiveness. But I pray that you'd uh, help us to, to reach and to strive for true knowledge that comes through obedience. And God, I pray for this week, I pray for everyone here, Lord, I, I pray that everyone here would be obedient this week, maybe in ways that they weren't last week maybe in areas where they've been slack, and that as they do that, they start to see more of you. They start to see more of your truth in your word. They see more of themselves, and they see more of the world around them. God, if there's people who are, who are viewing things that they shouldn't, they shouldn't view, or maybe they've got dealings with other people that aren't right, I pray that you would just um, tighten it up this week, that you draw your people back here in the project to a place of determined obedience. Not to win your favour, but because you've given us your favour. You've given us your love. And you've got so much more to communicate to us. And God, we don't want to be thumb-sucking toddlers at the project here when we've been a Christian for 20 years. We, we want to be ready for what you want to tell us. Whenever you want to tell us stuff. And we want to be able to understand it. And we need your help to do that. Amen.